Thank you, Pastor Everett. It's our joy and delight to be with you today. I appreciated the gracious invitation of your pastor, Pastor Van, to speak on this Sunday. He contacted me some time ago and asked if I would be here. And it's a joy to represent Appalachian Bible College here at Fellowship Bible Church. My wife and I both serve on staff there as missionaries of Appalachian Bible Fellowship. It's an unusual arrangement for most Bible colleges, but we do serve as missionaries uh, serving there and raise part of our salary as support. And so we're grateful for the partnership of churches and individuals in our ministry there at Appalachian Bible College. Uh, as Pastor Everett said, I'm the, the director of graduate studies and also a faculty member there. They told me when I was hired that I was 60% faculty and 40% dean of the graduate school. I'm not sure which part of me is which sometimes, but it's an interesting and uh, opportunity that I've enjoyed very, very much. My wife is financial aid counselor there at the college, and so we're delighted to represent the college here today. And we feel at Appalachian Bible College that we have a relationship, a very deep relationship with you as a church, which we're very grateful for. Pastor Van is a highly valued member of our board of directors at Appalachian, and so he's there on campus several times a year helping to make decisions which keep the ministry going and keep it strong, and we're very grateful for his presence and wisdom and input on the board at ABC. And as you just heard, Pastor Everett uh, attended his first master's class, and we're trusting that he'll be able to be in that program and finish that program, looking forward to having him involved in that through the next uh, couple to three years. You've also sent students our way, and we are grateful for them. Matt and Amy White are just... Um, a great testimony for this church on campus. They have certainly made their mark there at Appalachian Bible College. And I had Matt in a couple of classes this year, deeply appreciated getting to know him and his heart for the Lord. And also Katrina Martin, a student this past year in a couple of my classes as well, and a great student that I enjoyed getting to know her. So thank you for sending students our way. And we trust that will be the case for years to come. I am certain that there have been others that I'm not aware of that have been there in the past and that will be great to see other students come in the future to ABC from Fellowship Bible Church. I want to invite your attention this morning to the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. At the beginning of the 20th century, there were a number of notable British explorers that were kind of in a race to be the first person to reach the South Pole. And so names like Amundsen and Admiral Scott and the one that I'm most interested in this morning, Sir Ernest Shackleton, were names that came to the forefront and became legends in their time because of their efforts to explore the South Pole. Sir Ernest Shackleton, on one of those attempts to reach the South Pole, actually suffered a shipwreck and had to leave a number of his men on an island. Salvaging a smaller boat from the ship, he promised to go back and get a larger ship, fresh supplies, and he promised he would return and rescue his men from that island. The story of the shipwreck of the Endeavor and the rescue, the daring rescue that Sir Ernest Shackleton performed has become legendary. It's the stuff of movies. It's what caused him to be knighted by the British government. 
When he got back to the island with a new ship and fresh supplies, he found that the island was blocked by ice. But he noticed that there was what seemed to be an opening, possibly large enough to get through. And in the space of a half hour, he was able to move in, amazingly found his men ready on the shore with their supplies all packed up. They packed up quickly, got back out before the ice began to close again. When they finally got through all of that uh, daring rescue, he asked his men, how was it that you were ready? How was it that you knew I was coming? And they said, we did not know when you would come, but we knew you said you would be back. And so we were always ready. Things were ready on the shore. And when we saw the ice opening up, we would all gather expecting that this might be the time when you would come back. The Lord Jesus, the night before he would be crucified on the cross, shortly before he would go back to heaven, promised those disciples gathered together in the upper room that he would come back and get them. He said these words to them in John chapter 14. He said, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Behold, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus promised to come back and get his people we, those of us who know Christ as Savior, are among those people for whom that promise is still valid. Jesus has promised to come back and to get us, to take us home, to be with him in that place he's prepared for us. Now we call that coming of Christ to take us home to be with him, we call that the rapture. Now the word rapture you will not find in your Bible. It comes from a Latin word, rapio, which means to be caught up. And certainly the words and the concept of being caught up are found in your Bible. Paul said to the Thessalonians that Jesus himself would return to this earth. He would come with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ would rise first. And then we which are alive and remain, Paul said, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So we will be caught up someday. We will be raptured someday. Now the rapture should be distinguished from the second coming of Christ, what is called the revelation of Christ, or we often refer to as the second coming. Those two are not the same event. The rapture, Jesus comes in the air, and we meet him in the air at the second coming, he comes all the way to the earth. At the rapture, Jesus comes for his saints, for his people, those of us who know him. At the second coming, after the tribulation time, Jesus comes with his saints. We will come back with him to the earth. At the rapture, Jesus comes to take his people home to heaven. At the second coming, he comes to establish his kingdom on this earth the millennial kingdom. The rapture is for the church. The second coming is primarily for his people, the nation of Israel, where he will once again set up his kingdom with them at the center. And so those two are to be distinguished. 
But this morning, I want us to see that the rapture is more than just doctrinal truth. It is more than just doctrine to be able to fill in our prophetic charts and have our prophetic conferences. It is that, and we rejoice in that, but it's more than that. The rapture is also a truth which challenges us and comforts us, a truth of great challenge and comfort. And that is what Paul focuses on in 1 Corinthians 15. As he describes the rapture, he describes for us three key truths about the rapture which serve both to challenge us and to comfort us about the Lord's return. If you'll notice in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 51, Paul says, first of all, the rapture is a great change. The first truth about the rapture which should comfort and challenge us is that the rapture is a great change. Look at verse 51. Paul says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. Twice in those three verses, Paul uses the word changed. And so the rapture is a great change. Now Paul describes that change in several ways. First, he describes the completeness of that change. Look back again at verse 51 where he describes how this will be a complete change, the completeness of it. Verse 51, listen, he says, I tell you a mystery. Now the word mystery here is not referring to an Agatha Christie thriller or a Sherlock Holmes thriller. The word mystery in the Bible, as it's used in the New Testament, means something which was not previously revealed, but now God has chosen to reveal. In other words, it was hidden in ages past. The truth of the rapture was not known in the Old Testament. It was not revealed in the Old Testament. But it is now revealed in the New Testament to God's people. And Paul is saying... I'm now showing you this truth which was hidden in times past but is now revealed. And it's this, he says, we will will not all sleep but we will all be changed. I think that's a great theme verse for nursery ministry. That verse ought to be posted over the nursery door of every church. We will not all sleep but we will all be changed. That's a great comfort to parents, isn't it, to know that about the nursery? Obviously, that's not the change that Paul's talking about here. He's talking about a different kind of change. In the context, Paul is talking about the change of our bodies to be like Christ's. We have, as he describes, a perishable body which must be changed to be like Christ's. And so he says, we will not all sleep. Now, there's an interesting word. Paul uses the word sleep in the New Testament. In fact, it seems to be his favorite word to describe the death of a believer. When a believer dies, he sleeps. Now, be careful there. The soul does not sleep. There are some who teach that the soul goes to sleep awaiting the return of Christ. That's not what Paul means. The soul and spirit go immediately to be with the Lord. Paul himself said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so when you die, when I die, when when a believer dies, 
The real us, our soul, our spirit, goes immediately to be with the Lord. It is just the body that is temporarily laid to rest. And that's why Paul uses the word sleep. When you sleep, whether it's at night or in church or wherever it may be, when you go to sleep, you temporarily rest your body and then it's awakened again, right? Well, that's what happens to a believer in death. We temporarily put the body to rest, but it's only temporary. I remind people at gravesides that this is not a final resting place. That's a misnomer. There's nothing final about a grave for the believer. The body is temporarily laid to rest, and then it will be awakened again. It will be resurrected. And so Paul says, we will not all die, but we will all be changed. The completeness of that change, whether you have already gone into the presence of the Lord and your body is in a grave, or you are still alive when Jesus returns, all of us will be changed. The completeness of that change. Don't let anyone ever convince you that there is such a thing as a partial rapture. There are some people believe that, that believe that uh, when Jesus returns, only some who are really ready will go to be with the Lord and others will be given a little more time to get ready. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible here and in other places teaches that whether we are dead or alive at the rapture, we will all be changed. No exceptions, no exclusions. We will all be included in that great change. The change is complete. It involves all believers. And the reason for that is that Jesus is coming for his bride. And the whole bride is going home to celebrate the wedding feast with him. The whole bride will be there. Now, I, I loved weddings as a pastor. Some pastors just can't stand weddings. But I loved weddings. I loved everything about weddings except the mother-in-law. No, no, seriously. I loved everything about weddings. I loved the rehearsal. I loved the premarital counseling. I loved the wedding itself. A pastor has a unique perspective on a wedding. Got the best seat in the house. You know, the couple is standing there right before you on the platform. And, and the music is playing. And they're, they're whispering to each other. Now, you've always wondered as you watch weddings, what are they saying? And, you know, you're, you're probably thinking they're saying sweet nothings to each other, how much they love each other and so forth. Well, I know what they're saying. I'm right there beside them. They're talking about whether or not the car is well enough hidden so the groomsmen don't find it or whether or not the Thursday night tickets for the event they're going to on their honeymoon, you've got those ready. And that's the kind of things they're talking about up there. We, we just have a great perspective on weddings as pastors. But my favorite part of a wedding is when the bride comes through the door to, to get ready to come down the aisle and the wedding march is ready to begin, I always love to sneak a look at the groom when he first sees her as she's ready to come down the aisle. What a great moment that is. And she's dressed in all of her beautiful wedding gown and so forth. And I, I've always been tempted to say to the groom, get a good look now because she'll never look that good again. <laughs> Of course, the same thing could be said to her about the groom, right? <laughs> I've resisted that temptation uh, to this point. I've never said that, but always been tempted to. Weddings are just great. But one thing I've always noticed about weddings, such as she is, the bride is all there. 
I've never seen half a bride, three quarters of a bride. She is all there. And when Jesus comes back for his bride, we will all be included in that. Whether we are dead or we are still alive when he comes, we will all be changed. All, the completeness of this change. But then notice Paul also describes the suddenness of this change in verse 52. He says at the end of verse 51, we will all be changed. Then verse 52, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. It's interesting, isn't it, that Paul uses three expressions to explain the suddenness of this change, how quickly it will happen. First of all, he says it will happen in a flash. I still like the old King James word here, in a moment, in a moment. It's the Greek word atmos, from which we get our English word, atom. Now, I saw a physics teacher before or after the first service, and I asked him if this was correct. When I took physics uh, back in the dark ages when I was in high school, when I took physics, I learned, it may have changed by now, but I learned that an atom is the smallest particle of nature that can exist on its own as an entirety. Now, we can split atoms. I mean, I can't do that, but people have learned to do that. Split atoms, but it takes an outside force to do that. And fission and fusion and all those things take outside sources of material to accomplish that. But an atom is the smallest particle of nature that can exist on its own. And the word we get our word atom from is the word Paul uses here. So in his mind, he's thinking as he writes, in the smallest particle of time imaginable, that's when this will happen. It's how quickly it will happen. In a flash, in a moment. And then he says, secondly, in the twinkling of an eye. Now, that's not the blinking of an eye. It's the twinkling of an eye. You say, well, what is the twinkling of an eye? Well, you've, you've heard the expression before of a twinkle in someone's eye. It, it's that moment when light just seems to reflect quickly from the eye and there is a twinkle there. Okay, it's just a millisecond. It's a very short period of time. In a flash, in a moment... In the twinkling of an eye, this rapture will happen. It will occur so quickly. And then Paul thirdly says, in expressing the suddenness of the rapture, it will happen at the last trumpet. At the last trumpet. Now, how does that express suddenness? What's that about? Well, Paul's readers in Corinth would be very familiar with this expression. It's an expression that everyone in the first century would have known because it was really a military expression. For instance, the Roman army, when they wanted to communicate with the mass of troops out in the field as to troop movements, they would do that with a series of trumpet blasts. They didn't have shortwave radios, they didn't have cell phones, they didn't have other means of communication like we have today loudspeaker systems and so forth. So they would typically communicate in those settings with either banners or trumpet blasts. And in the Roman army, there would typically be, when the army was ready to, to move to another location, there would be a series of three trumpet blasts. The first trumpet signaled that you needed to pull up your tent pegs, get your things packed up, and get ready. 
The second trumpet would signal the fact that you're to fall into formation and get ready to move out. And the third, the last trumpet, would signal it's time to move out. March. Now when Paul uses this expression, his readers would be familiar with that and they would know when he says last trumpet, ah, he's referring to that military signal. When the trumpet sounds at Jesus' coming, there will not be time to pull up your tent pegs and get ready to go. The Lord is assuming you've already done that. That you've already pulled up your tent pegs from being deeply rooted in this world and you've realized you have another home, heaven, that you've trusted Christ as your Savior. He's assuming that's already done. There will not be time to get in formation. He's assuming that's already done. That you've, you've aligned yourself with other believers in a local body called the church. And you're serving and just waiting for Him to come back. He, he assumes that's already been done. Because when Christ returns, it will be the last trumpet. It will be the one that signals, we're moving out, we're leaving, we're going. So Paul says it will happen suddenly, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye. When that trumpet sounds, we are moving out. You know, I think some Christians have the mistaken impression that when Jesus comes back, there'll be some time to get ready for that. You know, we'll see him coming and we'll have time to get things ready and prepare ourselves. Not so. When Jesus returns, it will happen so quickly, there will be no time to get ready. And so Paul impresses on us the suddenness of the rapture, the suddenness of that change. But notice he also describes in verse 53 the reason for this change. The change is complete. It involves the whole body of Christ. It is sudden. But notice the reason for it in verse 53. Paul says, For or because the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. This is the reason why the change occurs. It's because we have a body that is perishable and mortal. Perishable means your body is decaying. It's getting older. Stuff starts to break down as it gets older. The fact that your body is mortal means that your body is dying. We all live, every one of us in this room, regardless of age, we all live in a decaying, dying body. It's just that the older you get, the more you realize that, the more it becomes apparent. I sailed right past 30, right past 40, right past 50, hardly blinked an eye and noticed any change at all. But when I hit my mid-50s, a couple years ago, I began to realize some changes taking place. Things don't move as quickly in the morning as they used to. Things have started breaking down that used to work fine. And what doesn't hurt doesn't work at all, it seems, sometimes. I'm beginning to notice some subtle physical changes. And I'm becoming aware that this body that we live in was not geared, it was not intended to live forever. So the reason for this change is that we must have this body changed into a body that is fitted for a perfect place. A decaying, dying body can't live in a place that's perfect, heaven. And so the change, the reason for the change is we must get a new body. 
And so when Jesus returns, we're, we're going to be changed. Changed into a body like Christ's. That's the reason for the change. So the rapture is described by Paul as a great change. But secondly, it is described by Paul in this passage as a great victory. Not only is it a great change, it is a great victory. Notice the emphasis on this beginning in verse 54. When the imperishable has been clothed, or when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Three times in these four verses he uses the word victory, and so it's clear that's his emphasis. When he's thinking here of the rapture, he's thinking of the great victory that will be won and will be expressed when the rapture occurs. Actually, that victory is expressed quite literally in verses 54 and 55 where he describes the cry of victory. He describes the words that will actually form a cry of victory when the rapture takes place. That cry of victory, verse 55, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? I, I again, still like the way that, the, and I use the NIV most of the time, but I like the way the King James translates this. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? To me, that describes better the two kinds of cries that may go forth at the time of the rapture. First of all, from those of us who are still living, O death, where is thy sting? If we're still alive when Jesus comes back, we will escape death. We will not experience its sting. We will bypass death and go directly into the presence of God. And I just think it would be very appropriate. I'm not dogmatic about this. I can't prove that we'll actually cry this as we go heavenward. But I, I think it surely is fitting that we could cry out, Oh, death, where is thy sting? Where is your sting? And then for those who have already died, whose bodies are temporarily at rest in the grave, and they will be resurrected at the rapture and changed to be like Christ's, isn't it appropriate that their cry would be, Oh, grave, where is thy victory? You couldn't hold me. I'm coming out of the grave. The cry of victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? There have been many times in my years of pastoral ministry when I walked across a graveyard, a cemetery, to a graveside to help a family lay the body of a loved one to rest that I would think as I was walking to that graveside, what a great time for the rapture to take place. Oh, Lord, if you would just come right now to see bodies come out of those graves, bodies of believers, and to hear them cry, Oh, grave, where is thy victory? And then to be among those who are caught up alive with them in the clouds and to utter that cry, Oh, death, where is thy sting? What a great victory shout that would be to hear. What a great time for it to happen. No doubt when Jesus comes back, someone 
will be having that privilege to witness it from a cemetery and hear those cries of victory. The cry of victory. But then notice, if you will, the completeness of this victory in verse 56. Paul says in verse 56, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Now, Paul introduces a couple of other elements to the equation here. He's talked about death and the victory that we'll have over death at the rapture. But then, almost out of the blue, and at first glance it would seem to be that it doesn't fit, he introduces sin and the law. What does that have to do with his argument about victory over death? Well, if you think about it for a little while, you'll quickly recognize that that sin and the law are intricately intertwined with death. They, They really have a close relationship. You see, it is sin that introduced death into the world, right? Paul said in Romans chapter 5, For by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, for that all men die because all have sinned. You see, it was sin, Adam's sin, that brought death into the human experience. And we die as human beings because sin entered the human race. Sin and death are closely tied together. But the law is also a part of this mix. Because it is the law that makes us aware of our sin and then condemns us because of our sin to death. You see how they're tied together? The law of God was never given to save people. Not even in the Old Testament were people saved by keeping the law. Abraham was justified by his faith. Romans 4 makes very plain. Old Testament saints were were justified, were saved by their faith in God. The purpose of the law, aside from being a rule of life for Israel as a nation, the purpose of the law was to show us that we could not measure up to God's holy, righteous, perfect standards to get into heaven. The purpose of the law was, according to Romans 3, to shut our mouths so that we would never be able to boast, well, I made it on my own. I did a pretty good job. No, no, God's law shows us we are incapable of meeting His holy requirements. His law points out our sin. And then because of our sin, the law condemns us to eternal separation from God, death. That's how the law is tied into death and sin. Now, these three come as a package deal. The law, sin, and death. And there can be no ultimate victory over death unless there's also a corresponding victory over sin and the law. And that's why Paul brings them all together in this passage. And then cries out, and this brings me to verse 57, this is the cause of the victory. We've seen the cry of victory. We've seen the completeness of that victory. Notice the cause of the victory, verse 57. But thanks be to God... He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What's the cause of this great victory over death, over sin, over the law? It's Christ. Only in Christ can you have victory over death and sin and the law. He is the one who has already won the victory for us at the cross. For when Jesus died on the cross, He didn't stay dead, did He? He came forth out of the tomb three days later. He conquered death himself 
by His own resurrection. And that provides proof and the assurance that we also will be resurrected. Because Christ came out of the tomb, we have victory over death. It is Christ's death, burial, and resurrection that gives victory over death. But Christ also died to give victory over your sin. He died to bear the penalty for your sin and mine. When Jesus died on the cross, He took the punishment that you deserved and that I deserved because of our sin. Christ took that punishment and paid it all on the cross. And so it is only through Christ that you can have victory over sin. And it is only through Christ that you can have victory over the law, that you can escape the condemnation of the law. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, Now there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. It is only if you've trusted Christ as your Savior that the demands of the law that you are guilty and deserve death are erased and the law no longer condemns you. So you see, my friend, if you realize all of that, what Jesus did for you on the cross, and if you've trusted Him as your Savior... You ought to be able to, like Paul, cry out in verse 57, Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Victory over death, sin, and the law. Complete victory through Christ. If you do not know Jesus as your Savior, if you've never trusted Him and the work He did on the cross to save you from your sins, you do not have any victory over death. As a pastor through the years, I've watched many people die or approach death's door. And I can tell you from experience that what the scriptures say is very true. It makes all the difference in the world to know Christ when you come to death's door. All the difference in the world. There is a huge difference that you can observe between people who know Christ and know that death is simply a doorway into His presence, and people who don't know Christ and have hopelessness and despair not knowing what's going to happen to them when they die. My father died in December after a nine-year battle with cancer. And in the, past, in, the, in the last few weeks of his life, as he was in hospice care, we had a number of great talks about death and about heaven. Just a few days before he died, within a week of his death, we talked again about heaven. And as I sat beside that hospital bed that they had moved into his, living, into his bedroom at the house, I asked him, I said, Dad, who do you want to see? Who do you want to talk to when you get to heaven? And he was still able to talk some. Very slowly he responded about people in the Bible that he would want to see and people from his past, the man who led him to the Lord and his job on the railroad and other people he would want to see, family members. And then he said, John, he said, I don't know what it's going to be like to see Jesus and just to be able to thank him for what he did for me when he died on the cross. And my dad, less than a week later, went out into eternity with the assurance that he was stepping into the presence of God. There is no greater victory than that, my friend. When you come to death's door, if you do not know Jesus as your Savior, you have no grounds for victory at all.
Christ makes all the difference. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. The rapture will be a great victory because of what Christ has done for us. But then if you would notice, Paul says one other great truth about change and about the the rapture that is of comfort and challenge to us. And that is that the rapture is a great motivation. Not only is it a great change, not only is it a great victory, it is also a great motivation. Verse 58 tells us how the rapture should motivate us. Paul says, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. He begins the, word with, or begins the verse with that word, Therefore, And I know that those of you who have been in this church very long, you've been taught the Word of God, and you probably have heard that whenever you see in your Bible the word therefore, you go back to see what it's there for. Because the word therefore is a connecting word. It connects what the writer is going to say with what he has just said. So what Paul is going to say in verse 58 is connected to what he's just said about the rapture. He gives three commands in verse 58. But he's saying, the rapture, what I've just talked about, if you know that Jesus is coming at any time, that is the motivation for keeping these three commands. Therefore, because Jesus is coming, he says, stand firm. The rapture is, first of all then, a motivation for purity. For purity. The word that's translated stand firm here is a word which is used in the New Testament of being seated or being firm morally. And it does refer in the New Testament to moral context, to moral purity. So if we believe that Jesus is coming back, our lives should be different morally. Now I'm sure that you, as well as I, as we look around, We're greatly concerned today about the lack of moral purity even among believers. We are bombarded on every side by the culture in which we live to sacrifice moral purity. The entertainment industry is pulling at us in so many different ways to compromise moral purity to where even many believers are beginning to adopt the philosophy of this world that it really doesn't matter what the Bible says about keeping yourself pure before marriage or about keeping yourself solely for your mate after marriage. It doesn't really matter, many people believe anymore, but it does matter, my friend. The Bible is very clear about moral purity. The Bible is very clear that marriage is the only place where sexual fulfillment is to be found. The Bible is very clear that marriage is between a man and a woman and it's designed to be for life and that they're to be faithful to one another, bound together for life. So the the Bible's clear on those things. And we cannot, because of the press of our culture, sacrifice moral purity. But you see, if you know that Jesus is coming back, that will serve as a great motivation for purity. The Apostle John does the same thing in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 3. He ties together the rapture with the motivation to being pure morally. He he says it this way in 1 John 3 verse 2. 
Dear friends, now we are the children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when He appears, okay, that's the rapture, when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Now that's the great change that we've been talking about. When we see Jesus, we're going to be like Him. Now, John goes on to say this in verse 3, Everyone who has this hope in Him, in Christ, purifies himself just as he is pure. If you you live every day with the awareness that Jesus could come today, then that will be a great motivation to moral purity. And when you are tempted to compromise moral purity, you will recognize Jesus could come back today. I don't want to be ashamed at his coming. That will be a motivation for you to keep your life morally clean and pure. My wife, as I mentioned earlier, um, also works for the college in the financial aid department, and occasionally she has to be away for a financial aid conference or seminar of some kind, and she'll be away for a few days, and that leaves me alone at home. It is not a pretty sight in our house when I'm home alone. Things get really messy. I mean, I'm the kind of person that doesn't see any need to make the bed when you get out of it because you're just going to get right back in it that night, you know? So why make the bed? I just usually don't make the bed. While she's gone, dishes have a way of piling up in the sink. And clothes have a way of finding their way on the floor rather than the dirty clothes hamper. And towels get disheveled on the towel racks in the bathroom. Things get to looking pretty messy around our house when Jeannie's gone. But you know what happens the night before she's supposed to come back? (laughs) You do, don't you? Some of you are guilty of the same thing. Things get cleaned up when I know she's coming back. Now, occasionally, I've been surprised. In fact, the last time that she had to leave for a trip like that was just a couple months ago, and she was supposed to be home on Friday evening about 7 or 8 o'clock. And so I left the college at around 5 o'clock that Friday evening thinking I've got a couple of hours to straighten things up. When I pulled the car in the driveway, she's going in the front door. Oh my, I was caught. I was caught unprepared with the house dirty. And I was embarrassed about that. You know, she would always come home, find it looking nice, and think I was just the greatest husband. (laughs) Kept everything so nice while she was gone. I was embarrassed. Some of us in this room today are going to be embarrassed when Jesus comes back because he's going to come when we're not expecting him and we thought we had time to get things cleaned up. We thought we had a little time to get those images off our computer. We thought we had some time to get those images out of our minds. We thought we had time to clean up some things in our lives and get our relationships right where they should be. We thought we had time to take care of that sin that we hadn't taken care of. And Jesus is going to show up and some of us are going to be embarrassed at His coming. If you live, if you live with the constant awareness that Jesus could come back any time, it will be the greatest motivation to moral purity you could ever have. You'll want to keep the house clean. A motivation to moral purity. Secondly, Paul says, the rapture is a motivation to faithfulness. You see it there in verse 58? Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Let nothing move you. 
The word here is a word which has to do with not shifting oneself, with being firm in your devotion to Christ. Let me ask you, how faithful are you to Christ? How firm, how unshifting, how immovable is your faithfulness to Christ, your devotion to Him? I think a lot of us are like the young man who wrote his girlfriend a love letter. And in that love letter he said, I would swim the deepest ocean, I would climb the highest mountain, I would cross the hottest desert to be with you. Signs his name and then he says, P.S., I'll come over to pick you up on Friday night at 7 if it's not raining. I think a lot of us profess our devotion to Christ in terms that we really don't live up to. We profess that we would do anything for Him, but do we in reality? How firm is your devotion to Christ? And I know devotion to Christ can be measured in lots of different ways. Our commitment to read His Word, to hear what He wants us to do and do it. Our commitment to prayer, to communication with Him and seeking His will. Our commitment to His body, the church. Lots of other ways that it can be measured. But how are you doing in your faithfulness to Christ? If you realize He could come back at any moment, it will, be a, it will make a difference. It will make a difference. It will be a motivating factor for you to be faithful. But thirdly, it will also motivate you to service. Not to, only to purity and to faithfulness, but it's a great motivation to service. You see it there in the middle of verse 58? Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I love the way Paul says this. He's talking about giving ourselves to the work of the Lord to God's work through His body, the church, in this age, in this world, giving ourselves to that. But he says, give yourselves fully to that. Now, that doesn't mean everybody needs to quit their job and become a pastor or a missionary. That everybody needs to be in vocational Christian service. doesn't mean that. The word fully means that when we serve the Lord, we do it fully. We do it with our hearts, with everything that's in us, with eagerness, with sincerity. We do it the way He wants us to. Do you serve the Lord that way? Fully? But then I love that he also says, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Not just in spurts, not good for us about six months and then you tail off and don't do anything for a year. No, no, he's talking about consistency. Always, eagerly, fervently serving the Lord. And if you know that Jesus is coming back, it will be a great motivation for you to serve him that way. Let me ask you this morning, friends. Are you ready for Jesus to come back? Are you ready for that time when we'll rejoice in that great change and shout that great victory? But are you living in light of the fact that He could come at any moment? Is that really a motivating force in your life to moral purity, to faithfulness to Him, to serving Him? What if Jesus were to appear visibly to you today? And I'm not suggesting he will do that, but just imagine, what if he were to appear visibly to you today and say, I'm coming back in 24 hours? Is there anything that would change about your life in the next 24 hours? Is there a relationship that would need to be mended? Family member that you've had a, a serious issue with of unforgiveness? Maybe even a fellow member of the body of Christ that you haven't spoken to, you've had differences with, and Things are not where they should be. Would, would there be any of that? You would say, I've I got to get that right before Jesus comes back. 
Would there be any sin in your life that you've been kind of playing around with or you've not dealt with properly, not confessed and forsaken, that you would say, I've got to get that right before Jesus comes back? Is there a neighbor maybe that you've thought about witnessing to but you never have and you'd say, I've got to talk to that person before Jesus comes back? Is there anything, anything you can think of that would need to change in the next 24 hours? Well, my friend, we do not know when Jesus is coming back. He could come back before that 24 hours is, is up. And if he does, will you be ready? Whatever you would change, go ahead and change. Go ahead and do. Go ahead and make right so that you'll be ready when he comes back. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for the reminder from your word of the fact that Jesus is coming again. And when he does, we will glory in that great change that will be ours to be like him. And we will shout that great shout of victory. But, oh Lord, while we're still here, help us to recognize that the soon coming of Christ should be a great motivation for us to live for you in the way that you want us to, to be faithful, to be zealous in our service, to be morally pure. And Lord, help us today to make whatever changes we need to make, to do whatever we need to do in obedience to you, to be ready for Jesus to come back. We ask it in his name. Amen.